0: Folks, have you ever asked yourself, or ever said to yourself, oh man, some people will never change. Now, it's never really meant as a compliment. Sure it's not. When someone says that, it's not a compliment. Um, Normally, whenever it's said, it's said with resignation and hurt, oh, I've spent time and effort and energy. I've given them so many chances. I guess some people will never change. That's normally how we say it. It's normally how it means when we say, you know, some people will never change. If you've said that ever in your life, if you're thinking about someone right now who you've said that about, Second Corinthians is the perfect book for you to be studying because Paul would have been thinking that he, it could easily have been said of these group, this group of Greek Christians in Corinth Yet 2 Corinthians is not written with despair and resignation. It's written as a great encouragement. After a real struggle, a real fight, uh, the people of this church are finally beginning to change. And Paul's writing to encourage them to keep on that path, keep going, keep growing in that change. So let me try to give you a wee bit of a backstory to this letter because the context really shapes so much of what's happening here. Because um, 2 Corinthians isn't the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinthians, it's probably at least the fourth letter, which just makes it really confusing. But um, I'll just try and tell you the story and I'll have a bit of a timeline on the screen. Now, Corinth is an incredible city for so many different reasons. Um, It's the capital city of the Achaea region, which is basically this area here. Now, Rome is just over there. Athens is there, the two biggest cities in the known world at the time. And a lot of the ships, if they had to sail around here, found shipwreck in around this part here. There was a saying, which I think it maybe loses some of its poetic quality in English, but in English it says, if you're going around the Cape Malia, you need your will ready, which is just really cheerful. So what tended to happen was ships would have went this safer way through here and stopped in Corinth. Now, there's land there about six miles, and so ships would have normally done one of two things. They'd have offloaded everything and then carried it to another ship just on the other side of the water here, and then just sail that short distance to Athens. There were ships, and that was their sole trade, just going that short distance. Or what often happened was for some of the smaller boats, they lifted the boats out of the water, put them on wheels, and pushed the boats six miles and landed them in to the water at the other side. That meant Corinth was a crucial, critical city. It was also known then for... Uh, where sailors went to go to let off steam. It was a party city. It was known for its sexual sin and its open-mindedness to anything goes. And it was literally uh, such a strategic city for Paul for two reasons. Number one, to the, the prominence of the city as a hub to put a church in a place where there are so many people coming and going, crucial. But secondly, secondly, if a church could be established in this city of all cities, it's a testimony to the power of the gospel that the church can go anywhere. If it can, if it can grow and change people in Corinth, it can go anywhere. So it's kind of crucial. So Paul founded the church at some point over an 18-month period uh, between A.D. 50, A.D. 52-ish, uh, where you read about the story in Acts 18. Uh, The reason he stayed there so long was because to disciple people coming out of such a lifestyle as those that were in Corinth, that took a lot of time. It wasn't easy to turn so many mindsets around. So Paul spent longer here than any other place apart from one. Does anyone know where he stayed longest? Ephesus. Okay, just congratulate if you were thinking Ephesus, all right. Um, And then so Paul moves on uh, in his missionary journeys, but then word reaches him from Chloe's people, uh, we read about it in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, that there is trouble and difficulties in the church. Some are going back to the old lifestyle, trying to uh, maintain uh, their salvation, but also maintaining their popularity. And they're saying, well, look, I'm saved on the inside, so it doesn't really matter what I do on the outside. It's just Greek thinking, and so they're trying to go on. And then other people's response to that was, well, hey, listen, grace, it's forgiven, it's fine, it's okay, it doesn't matter. We're tolerant, we're forgiving, we're loving. So Paul writes this first letter, and he refers to it in 1 Corinthians as the, the previous letter. First Corinthians 5 verse 9 is called the previous letter, which laid out the fact that Christians have to be distinctive on the outside, not just on the inside. People need to see the difference that's in us. Otherwise, what's the message that we're sharing here? So 1 Corinthians 7 reveals that they reply to a letter of their own, and they're looking for clarification on a couple of things, and from that, Paul replies with his own letter, a second letter, which what we now know as 1 Corinthians, that's early AD 55. Paul sends Timothy just after this to check in on the church, to check in on how that, that first letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, how it went down. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us, I'm sending Timothy. Unfortunately, Timothy comes back to Paul and says, yeah, not so much with the the, the love here. Uh, It's really fallen on deaf ears. They don't care for you, Paul, at the minute. They're really kind of turning against you. There's false prophets, false teachers that have come in, these self-styled apostles which are creating a platform by themselves. And rather than criticizing the message, they're criticizing the messenger. They're tearing you down to build themselves up, Paul, and they're trying to make themselves a platform here. So the, the the line of thought in Corinth at the point was, well, who does Paul think he is telling us what to do? Who does he think? He's just a tent maker. He doesn't understand us Greeks. He doesn't understand our city. He's not as an impressive a public speaker as these other guys. He's talking about living in poverty, and he's talking about, no, that's not, that's not the Greek way of doing things. And there was almost an element of this kind of prosperity-style teacher, you know, kind of celebrity, kind of good-looking, got the money, got the looks, got the... And it appealed to the old Corinthian lifestyle. So Timothy reports this to Paul while he's in Ephesus, and Paul drops everything. There's revival going on in Ephesus. He drops everything, and he hightails it to Corinth to confront them in what he calls a painful visit. See, what happens is these false teachers started pointing the finger and verbally abusing Paul to his face. And what really hurt Paul was the fact that he's waiting for his friends to stand up and say, you can't say that about Paul. You can't say it about him. And no one says anything. And Paul's heartbroken. He after, says, after a year and a half of building you up, and, and, I, and I, I, I got here as fast as I can, and I poured my heart out to you to try and love you and reach out to you, and you've stabbed me through the heart. And so he leaves Corinth and, heartbroken, goes back to Ephesus. And he writes what he calls a, a severe, a sorrowful letter. This is the third letter that he writes to Corinth, at least the third that we know of. It's referred to in, in chapter, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, and then chapter 7 up on the screen. He sends this letter, not with Timothy this time, but with Titus, with Titus. And once the severe letter had been sent Paul leaves Ephesus for Macedonia he, he's on route there to Macedonia Paul holds back in us. he's waiting to hear what Titus has to say he's wanting to hear what Titus is going to come back with Corinth and saying okay look did it go well how did this go down because the, the last time last letter I wrote didn't go down well the last visit didn't go down well how's this going to go Titus I need to know I need to know He can't find Titus anywhere So he has to head on towards Macedonia in what we now know as Paul's third missionary journey. Thankfully, though, Paul and Titus do manage to meet up in Macedonia. And actually, they hear that Titus' visit was actually really successful. And in 2 Corinthians 7, we see here that they're, they're repenting and they're coming back to Paul. And so the severe letter was harsh but it was right and it was successful and it accomplished what Paul had desired to do. Let me just pick out some of the things that he says there up on the screen. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I didn't regret it. Okay, I did regret it. But as is, I rejoice not because that you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I had, to, I had to kind of let all out, but I'm glad that at least it hit home. And so then Paul writes a fourth letter, which we now are going to study what we now know as Second Corinthians. And it's Paul's response to this church that are turning away from false teaching and back to the true gospel, back to a true faith. And his response is, I still love you guys. I still love you guys. And there's so much that we need to do. And there's so much that we gotta make up for. So let's go. And if you've ever fallen out with someone, and if you've ever really struggled to figure out, okay, they've said sorry, how do we go from here? What's the next step after repentance and rebuilding a relationship and getting back to that place where God is at the center and you're blessing each other? How do we get back to that point? That's 2 Corinthians. So it's a really good book to study. And in fact, then Paul eventually makes it back to Corinth. And he meets with them and from there he writes his letter to the Romans. And in Romans fifteen, twenty-six, he says, that Paul is able to send a gift from the churches of Achaia to the starving believers in Jerusalem from Corinth. So the letter hits home. So it's, it's exciting. So let's, that's, that's the backstory, uh, And let's get into the text now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints, not just some, but all the saints, who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church probably caused Paul more heartache and hurt than any of the other churches that he started combined in this period of his life. But that never stopped Paul from loving them deeply. And so he greets them in verse two, grace and peace from me to you. There's a real lesson here in how to deal with troublemakers in your life. First of all, it's a reminder that the road of discipleship is never as easy as we would like it to be. Everyone has ups and downs. Everyone has these moments where we make mistakes and we do things that we know that and we realize that we shouldn't do and we make bad decisions sometimes. And so Paul is showing us, look, there's people who are not perfect. All right? Everyone. Grace to these people. Grace to them. Nobody's perfect. So let's show grace as God has shown grace to us. Grace to these people. If false doctrine has grabbed hold of them, then we need to reach them and help them and, and teach them. Not taught them to become exasperated. Oh, some people never change. No, grace to these people. And peace to these people if they believe rumors that they hear. You know, generally speaking, a lot of people don't really care about rumors until the rumors are about them. And And then we care a lot about rumors and gossips. Listen, are you going to go to war with everyone who's been told something that isn't true simply because they heard that it wasn't true? You can't go to war with everyone. You can't have such a bitterness in your heart that you're ready to lash out at everyone who hears something that isn't quite right. You've got to seek peace with people. The temptation is often just to call people out, to hold it over them, to be really passive aggressive with the whole thing. Let me ask you this. Who would have said to Paul, Paul, You wait until they write a letter to you apologizing. Because remember, Paul has heard about their repentance through Titus. He hasn't heard it from them. And so how many of us would say, okay, listen, if they're really sorry, then they have to come to me and say that they're sorry. They have to confess it to me, and then we can go forward. I'm not holding it against them, but they need to apologize first. Paul says, guys, I'm glad that stuff's behind us grace and peace to you, from me to you. And he's showing them that there's no hard feelings. He's showing them, look, listen, you come back to me. It's no problem. Let's write another letter. Let, let, let's get going again. I I'm not. I've, I've got too much other important stuff going on to get bogged down by your nonsense here. So let's just crack on and let's get on. I'm showing you there's no hard feelings. I'm taking the lead as the mature Christian, as the mature believer. Grace, because I know you're still growing. Peace, <laughs> because I know I'm still growing. Let's get on with it he's not holding on and saying, well, you have to apologize first. You have to apologize first. He sees an opportunity and he writes a letter and says, guys, I love you still. I love that. Do you remember when David killed Goliath? And uh, he embarked on this campaign and was defeating Saul's enemies all around him. And the people started singing the songs. Oh, you know, Saul's killed as hundreds and thousands. And, but, you know, David's killed 10 times that. And they're, they're kind of really bigging them up in the charts and all the rest of it. And David's sitting one day playing his harp, you know, like, like a warrior. I always find that such a strange combination, kind of this general kind of harping it up. But anyway, he's playing the harp for the king. And Saul's there stewing and he's bitter and he's jealous. And out of nowhere... He grabs the spear and he plays pin the harpist on the donkey and and it just misses David. What's David's response? As the warrior, as the mighty victor who's slain thousands and thousands of his enemies. Well, the first thing he did was duck, which was a really good idea. But what he didn't do was Look at that spear and says, "Oh, so this is the game that we're playing. Right. Well, I don't miss, and throw it back." <laughs> By the way, it happened twice, and David ducked twice, and didn't retaliate twice. Grace, peace. Blessed be. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, he comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Notice the language here. Tribulation, affliction, trouble, suffering. It goes to show that, that trials are no respecters of person. It happens to us all. Okay, So it's not like, well, I'm a good Christian. I shouldn't get any trials. Or I'm a bad Christian. Well, I, I suppose I should expect just trials all the time. That's not how it is. Even the godliest people have trials. David had his trials. Paul, the apostle, has his trials. Remember the Psalms? Why so downcast, O my soul? Why am I going through this? Why do I feel so low? Why am I so despairing? Why am I losing it so much? Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said in a sermon, I am the subject of depressions of spirits so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I. We all go through them. We all go through trials. We all go through moment, times of affliction and suffering, Paul in verse 8 of this chapter, which we'll get to in a minute, says, "I, I actually genuinely thought I was going to die. I thought this was it. And later on, he'll list all the ways that he could have possibly died. And yet he starts this section by saying, blessed, praise, glory, honor to God. He starts with praise. Do you know why we start our church services with praise, and then have the sermon, rather than starting with the sermon, and going with then the songs, and all afterwards. The reason is because praise changes our perspective and gets us ready to hear what God has to say. It doesn't change our problems. It doesn't change your sinfulness. It doesn't change what God is doing or why God is allowing things to come into your life. But praise has a way of changing how we see those things that God is doing. Paul, in all of his hurt and all the trials that this church has caused him, all the ways his life has been put in danger, he says, Blessed be, praise be, glory be, honor be to God. You know, and it reminds me of Job 1. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is such a challenge because we can so often fall into the habit of being glass half empty kind of people. We can be like children looking through the wrong end of a telescope and saying, oh God, why are you so far away? Oh, everything that I want is so far out of reach. And we can get into that perspective where oh, it just so seems so far away. Prius worship has a way of turning that telescope around and when we look through we say oh god you are close you're closer now than one you've never been and, and it has a way of bringing us into the presence of god and praise turns it around so that god is closer and then we know in psalm 73 it's a, it's a psalm written by asaph not david but asaph writes god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me, and here he's being honest, he's been really honest with us. He says, as for me, my feet almost stumbled, I nearly backslid, is how we would say. My feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, God, I'm trying to do the right things. So why am I the one suffering whenever they're all getting away with it? Why am I the one suffering for trying to serve you? he's wrestling with this and it goes on and it feels to him that either God either doesn't care or he isn't powerful enough to show that he does care and the psalm pretty much runs like that for the first 15 verses and then you get to verse 16 of psalm 73 and he says and when I sought to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God what he's saying is until I got to the place where we worship until I got into the place of praise, until I got to the place where I could see God close, then I discerned their end. I wasn't jealous or envious of the wicked anymore because I had a new perspective on things. I realized that I'm living for eternal rewards, not momentary rewards. So once I got into the place of praise, once I got into the place of worship, once I got into the presence of God, I didn't worry about the rest of them just so much. My perspective changed. The reality of circumstances didn't change. His perspective on the reality changed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So imagine you're the Corinthian leadership. Titus has just left and he's buzzing. And then this letter arrives from Paul. And they're kind of going, oh, man wonder if he's spoken in the Titus yet. Tell you what, you read it. No, I'm not reading it. I'm not reading it. You read it. No, I, I forget how to read it. You, you, you better read it. Because oh. I know if I, if it would have been me writing the letter, it would still be so passive-aggressive. I would still be saying, okay, guys, so remember when you did this? Yeah, yeah. I forgive you. Remember when you did this? I forgive you. Do this. You know, you start... I, you know, and you're trying to build up this sort of idea that you know what you've really hurt me but I'm the bigger person that's not what happens here because they open the letter and they read grace and peace to you and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort wow Do you deal with people the way God deals with people? Do you deal with people the way Paul deals with people? Now pay attention. Verses 4 and 6 are written. The God of comfort comforts us in our affliction, which means that Scripture is really trying to say here, God isn't going to take you around affliction necessarily. He isn't going to take you away from a path that, that will take you down that road of suffering but rather that God will comfort us when he takes us down those paths that leads us to affliction, that leads us to trials, that leads to hardship, that leads to sleepless nights, that the God of comfort will be there for us in those moments. Some Christians don't believe that God will allow them to suffer, but if you believe that, you're going to struggle with a lot of what the Bible says. So if you're someone who just wants to, you know, abandon every negative thought in the name of Jesus or whatever, Listen, that's just not biblical. That's just not how it is. You look at the majority of Christians around the world, uh, so many of them belong to the persecuted church where their governments will kill them or imprison them if they find them. God allows it. But with it, He promises comfort. A a, a distinction to make here, the word affliction here in verse 4 is like everyday trials bills to pay, mortgages to cover, uh, you have an annoying boss or, or your kids are frying your head. Whatever it happens to be, it's all that kind of normal day-to-day stuff. Then in uh, verses five and six, the word suffering appears. That's more targeted. That's more because of who you are in living for Christ in this context. Okay? So maybe you refuse to lie to get a seal and work. Or maybe you refuse to contribute to a charity that's going around the office because they're promoting a sinful... Cause. Maybe you won't date someone or sleep with someone because you are a Christian and there's a backlash. That's the context of suffering here. It's being targeted because you're choosing to live for Christ. And what we see here is that God allows it for a reason. There's lots of reasons why you could be suffering the reasons why you're suffering. Sometimes we're morons and we bring it on ourselves, okay? I've walked that path many a time, okay? And it's like, I'm an idiot. I get what I deserve. I reap what I sow, okay? There's other times, though, when God brings trials into my life to make me realize and identify areas that I've been wrong in, and and he's teaching me. And so he brings me to a place of growth. He brings me to a place of repentance. He brings me to a place of discipleship and a learning curve. They're not easy either. I've had my fair share of them, though, as well. But here, Paul identifies a type of suffering that God allows just so we can help someone else walk the path that we have just walked. And so the instinctive reaction to this is, no way, that's not fair. I don't sign up for that. I don't want that. I couldn't go through something like that. I couldn't deal with it. I'd get crushed. No one would learn anything from me watching me go through a trial. Hmm? I'll not ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure we've all thought that. Hmm? I I can't teach anyone anything on that. For me, personally, whenever I wonder if I've got the strength or power to go through trials, um, even if I could suffer for Christ's sake, I've been helped by, by lingering on 1 Peter 4:14, 4, which says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, in that text, even though it's only talking about an insult and not Uh, trials and, and physical things that the principle holds. In extraordinary circumstances, the reason you can be blessed in the moment of being assaulted or insulted or criticized or threatened with death, the reason you can be blessed is because in that moment, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that's not Peter offering you something. That's a promise from God. And I take it to mean that God in that very moment that we need him shows up in a way in that moment that he doesn't reveal himself to us in any other point of our lives. When we need him the most, we get this this, this (sighs) help from God that we can never experience in any other set of circumstances. And he gives in a way that he just doesn't give to us in other times. The God of all comfort, meeting us in the point of need. If you're familiar with the story of Corrie Ten Boom, you'll know that she grew up in a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, whenever it was, they occupied Holland, the Netherlands, and uh, before she went to the concentration camp, she asked her father as a child, "What?" Happens if they come and point a gun at me? What happens if I, if I will I have the strength? Will I, will I be able to pay with my life? Will I be able to do it? Will I have the strength? And here's the story that her father um, told her. He says, when I send you to go on the train to Amsterdam, do I give you the ticket a month ahead of time? Or do I give you the ticket just as you get on the train? The point of the story is that God will give us what we need not a month before we need it, but when the train of suffering and death arrives in the station, and not a moment before. And that's been very helpful to me because I think what First Peter 4 is saying, what I think Paul is saying here in Second Corinthians, is God is a God of comfort, and He will reveal Himself in such a way when you need it at the moment you need it. And even though we're standing here, happy, healthy, and say, well, I don't really need that kind of thing. I'm not going through it just like that at the moment. I don't think I could go through what they're going through. That's okay. Because when you get to that point, you'll have a help from God in a way that you have not experienced in this moment yet. And that's why it's so sad that we we miss out on this so much. You know, because... Paul's saying when you have that experience whenever God comes through for you in such a way, you have this responsibility now, you have this opportunity now to, to share it with people around you who are walking that same path who are going through that same thing you don't just share it with anyone necessarily but whenever you hear that there's someone going through the same thing then you get alongside them, maybe it's a miscarriage and you get alongside someone who's just lost a child and say look listen I've been there maybe you've lost a loved one listen I've been there I've been made redundant, I don't know where the next page. I've been there. I've been in a fight with the kids and they've walked out of the house. Listen, I've been there. And it's so sad when churches are filled with people who are insisting on pretending that they're OK. Because if I'm the one who's struggling and I come in and everyone's got their masks on, all that does is add to the isolation and hurt that I'm feeling in my struggle. But if there are people who, in in the right way, in, in the right tone, in the right context, are testifying to the goodness of God, to the God of all comfort in their struggle, not only am I not isolated anymore, but I am encouraged that the God who brought them through can also bring me through. That's what this is about. And so do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, they refused to bow down to the statue, and then the king threw them into the fiery furnace. And, and he looks in and he sees four figures, uh, the three men, and then one that had the appearance, the likeness of the Son of God. What's the point? Those three guys could have pulled a sickey that day and found some excuse to not be at the statue ceremony. Some excuse, some reason, but they had avoided the trial they'd have missed out on the astounding presence of God in the trial. And notice in the text, if you go back to Daniel and read it, the, the, so, the king had to send soldiers in and drag them out. Why? Because they didn't want to leave the presence of God in the fiery trials. Sometimes God loves us too much to spare us the trials because he wants to, wants to give us the blessings of his nearness in the fire. And he wants us to share them I'm and bless them and encourage. Okay, we'll we need to move on here. Verse 7. Our hope for you then is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, we will share also in our comfort. So look, if this is for you this morning and, and you're thinking, not in your head, yes, I'm going through the trials, then watch for the comfort. Watch for the comfort and then use that. Use the things that God has done to get you through and share and tell them. Bring glory to him and comfort to others by doing that. Your sufferings are not coming to you by accident. They're not some chance thing where you're saying, oh, well, I just fell into this trial today. No, you come to them by divine appointment. So do not waste your sorrows. Don't be consumed by the trial. Don't become inward looking. Well, I can't believe they left me. I can't believe I got dumped. I can't believe I lost my job. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. I can't believe. Paul's point here is saying, look, it happened to me. I still don't fully know why, but I'm not going to waste. I'm going to use this to build up the church. I'm going to use this to build up people around me. And guess what, Corinth? I'm building you up with this. I know I'm a better pastor for coming through the trials. (coughs) At the time, I didn't want to go through them. I didn't want to know about them. But having been through them makes me better for it. And I hope that you get blessed because of that. Romans 5 puts it like this. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces or employs endurance and endurance, character and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul's saying that when we've been crushed and knocked off your feet, you'll see the world differently from being down there. And you'll see other people who are crushed and lying on the ground while you're down there as well. And you'll see them in a different way. You'll see them from a different perspective while you're down there. Which means you'll treat them with a compassion and a care and an insight that other people can't give to them. And that makes you so valuable to the kingdom of God. It makes you so wonderful there, and God can do something with you and echoes what Ecclesiastes tries to say when he says he makes everything beautiful in his time. Everything, Jeff, that's what the Bible says. Everything. Right now? No, not right now. In his time. But everything that you're going through, every trial, every hurdle, every barrier, it isn't meaningless. In fact, the more that you have gone through in this life, the more you have to offer the people around you in this church. And that's a precious thing. So do not waste it. Don't waste what you've been given. Trials are seeds that opportunities grow from. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself we thought we were going to die indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him we have set our hope and he will deliver us again do you hear the encouragement coming through there do you hear the hope coming through there Now, leave the details of exactly what he's talking about. Read Acts 19. That's the story. They're, Paul like wipes his brow with sweat and they take the cloth and they're they're like healing people with with the napkin and stuff uh, and then the sons of Sceva come out verse 14 of Acts 19 they're not believers but they want to get in on the act they try to cast out a demon the demon beats them up and it kicks them out into the street the seven of them uh, they're out in the street naked running through the street I love the bible I just love all the wee details that it gives uh, and and people are going whoa no way and they're turning to God in their, you know, so many every day, that it's empty in the temples, it's empty in the false doctrine, and it's empty in their coffers, and so there's a riot in Ephesus, uh, and Paul thinks, okay, there's something about to kick off here, and in verse 29 of Acts 19, they arrest two of Paul's men, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they're going to put them to death. They say, Paul, you need to get out of Dodge, you need to get out of here, and Paul says, no, I have to be with my men, I have to be with them. And in 2 Corinthians here, he's confessing, guys, look, in that moment, I thought we were going to die. I thought that we were handing ourselves over to death. There was a death sentence on us to the point now, the only hope that we had was everlasting life, all right? Because we left all hope of this life at the door. We're hoping now for the next life. Verse 10, but he delivered us. I love this. He delivered them though in his timing, not theirs. He delivered them in his way, not theirs. He delivered them by bringing them through it, not helping them avoid it. And stay safe in a little church bubble. That's not how revival works. And in verse 11 it says, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So Paul finishes this resection section by saying, so join us in prayer because there are bigger things happening too important for us to be worrying about the little grudge and misunderstanding that we have. Let's use this reuniting to unite in prayer. Now, so often God will not do something until his people get about the business of praying. In this way, we stay close to God and we know it's him that is doing this wonderful thing. The blessing granted here in the place of prayer, I think, is the work in the church of Ephesus after the rise that he's mentioned And so God is working. So keep praying. Get behind us. Let's not, don't work against me here. Work with me. Work with me in this so that we can share in the blessings. So he's talking about sharing in the sufferings and sharing in the comfort and sharing in the blessings. As we come together and see God do mighty things for his people and for them then to look at you and say, thank you so much for praying. Thank you so much for praying. I wish that would happen more. There would be people just coming up and saying, oh, Jeff, I, I just felt that you were praying. Thank you so much. And that's not about them. That's about my prayers. Right? It's about my prayer life. Because So often we say we'll pray for people, and either we don't, or we kind of forget, or we'll pray for them but never pray with them. Regardless of the trials and the sufferings and the afflictions, folks, the God of all comfort has promised to be with you in the trials and wants you to use that to help and bless others coming behind you. So pray, pray for them, pray with them, so that many, many even in this church, many here sitting around you this morning will give thanks for the blessings granted through your encouragement, your comfort, your prayers, even for your trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an introduction.